0: yo yo welcome back to the gems of history podcast i'm your host jacob shop and join with me as always is my co-host evan roosh hey 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 I we're feel, speaking in three it feels like i haven't intro'd in a while for some reason
1: i think i just kind of get that nervous tick where you just immediately say something random and that's where it's coming. Get from. into it. And also spies. So That's true.
0: Yeah. yeah I hope you guys enjoyed our spy series, uh, the British and American Revolutionary War spies. Uh, if you are new here, we talk about history stuff, if you couldn't tell by the name. We're not the history of rocks, if that's what you thought. Or roll. No, neither one. So go find something else. Maybe, to to. <laughs> maybe we do.
1: Maybe we'd be sponsored if we just just cover rocks one time.
0: But. Yeah, we like to cover some cool history topics, maybe stuff that is more exciting than learning about names and dates as you do in history class. It's not memorization here. It's, it's more
1: fun than that. Right. That has to be by far in every conversation that we have with people who've listened to our show or people who we talk about our show, they always say, well, I never got into history because names and dates. So if you're a history teacher out there listening, just take that, I guess, into a little effect that, I don't know, maybe teach a theme or something, or maybe don't test them exactly on, I don't know, dates and names, because that seems to be the biggest barrier.
0: I actually read something interesting, though. I don't remember where, but it said history is supposed to teach us lessons. It's not supposed to just be like memorization. So if you're just teaching people hey, remember, this guy was the king at this time. What does that that teach you? What lesson are you learning from that? You're just learning who this guy, or where this guy was at a certain time. It's not really helpful. So that's what we're here for, is we're trying to give you a more in-depth look at some stories from history that maybe you could learn a thing or two from.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's definitely a great sentiment to have. I mean, if you think about even presidents, like who was the ex-president of, the united states it's like we don't know what they did it's just memorization it's just who it was what number president was jfk and you don't realize what he all did like stuff like that 37 realistically how many presidents do
0: you think that we both could name uh i could probably name a good 75 percent of them that's not me holy cow! i don't know i couldn't tell you when they were but What number president was John F. Kennedy?
1: How many presidents were there? I bet, like, real history buffs are probably screaming right now. Oh, yeah. how do they
0: have a podcast?
1: 35. I was way off. Anyways, (laughs)
0: we're not talking about. Well, I'll talk about a president later, but that's not our main focus today. I'll also talk about a president later, funny enough. Good, good, good. We planned this out perfectly. Uh, We are going to be doing one of our short story episodes. So, if this is your first time listening to a short story episode, instead of doing a deep dive on a singular topic, we chose some topics that wouldn't be long enough for a full episode on their own, and we kind of mash them into an episode all together and give you guys little snippet stories that are either a lot of fun or maybe are very interesting, but as I mentioned, just don't have enough meat to them to validate doing them in an episode on their own. So that's what we're going to be doing today. Uh, I have two medium-length stories, and then Evan's got some bite-sized stories for yep. you guys i
1: have six sliders for you while jacob has two full-on big macs
0: ah uh, i don't know about that maybe like appetizers oh yeah this is like the uh, nacho the big giant nacho platter oh. so it's technically still an appetizer but it's enough for a
1: meal the nacho platter always is a mainstay wherever we go out so even good. when it gets like slightly cold i know yeah it's kind of upsetting but
0: Still hits the worst, though, is when you get like the really soggy chip that you pick up and just flops.
1: Oh, yeah, then you just want to go back and fight the chef.
0: But I also have a friend who looks for that. Like, Mm. they douse their like when you get the uh, the the speedway container where it's just like chips and then like the liquid cheese, they just douse them in cheese and then let it sit so that they get soggy and they like it that way. And it blows my mind because that's just disgusting to me. I really do try my best
1: to not get mad at people's food takes because it's their taste buds, and, like they're all unique. But what the hell? It is just mind. <laughs> You're just marinating tortilla chips, which are already fried tortillas. Yeah, in cheese. Just on let that speedway let that boy
0: <laughs> soak. Get it real nice and moist. Okay, I am uncomfortable. (laughs) Evan, if you would like to start us off, we're going to do, I think Evan's going to do two of his little sliders, as he calls them, Mm -hmm. and then we're going to jump into one of mine after that.
1: All right. So the first story comes, uh, or excuse me, the first story is about John Joseph Merlin, one inventor of the roller skates.
0: Oh, actually, I think I have heard about this guy. I bet he is a very funny human being. He's an he's honestly
1: part of the list of inventors who get really excited about their passion, really excited about their new product, but kind of forget how to, you know, properly test them. Yep. And so it's the 1760s, and JJM is going to debut the infamous roller skates.
0: And this is also the time where like all of these people are testing their own stuff. They, oh, yeah. I didn't have someone else do it for him.
1: Yeah. There was no laboratory where you could like test things on animals or human test subjects. Yeah. It was, you just kind of have to get out there right. and do
0: it. It's like Cramerica testing their, their <laughs> oil bladder. <laughs> uh, but he
1: decided to debut his roller skates at a fancy masquerade party. And as his costume, he put on roller skates. And carried a violin with him and began to skate around the party, playing the violin. So so far, pretty great. I mean, that's pretty solid intro. You
0: are the guy at the party, if that's you.
1: You're out there rocking 300 violin orchestra while scooting around. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. Although JJM was a quite the inventor as well as a musician, turns out he was not that great of a skater, and he couldn't control his speed or. Funny enough, he didn't really put a brake on him, And so he was going very fast in one direction and wildly crash-landed into a huge and expensive mirror, which at the time was worth $500, which if you think about that now, adjusted for inflation from 1760, that thing's up there. Pretty expensive. Very expensive mirror. You could say he... Was not a skater boy. No, and he said, see you later, boy. <laughs> he yeah. did. But he smashed the mirror to pieces, severely wounded himself, broke his violin, and put the invention of the roller skates back to the drawing board. Started the days with W's and ended with a major L. <laughs> Do you think someone threw a banana out there?
0: I just sort of a guy <laughs> from Mario Kart. This not, was all him, I think. Yeah, this
1: was all just natural, un- or just not being coordinated If you enough.
0: build a mode of transportation on wheels, you have to come up with a way to make it stop.
1: I highly suggest, and we'll probably share this on our social medias, at Gems of History Podcast on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, and at Gems underscore History on Twitter. But there's looking at the original designs of the roller skates, there's just
0: simply not brakes on them. You just kind of... He's gonna have to stop. <laughs> That's kinda like the guys that do the speed downhill skating and stuff where they just like mm. turn themselves and it's that absolutely terrifies me watching those people do those downhill speed runs and stuff. Well, oh, especially like I've been snowboarding before and it was just it was
1: a very exciting afternoon in my life, but the, you just don't you just don't stop. You just kinda have to like yeah. switch your body and my big goofy ass could not do that.
0: Uh, so my buddy Casey, that's been on the show, he asked me like in a group chat with a bunch of people who wanted to go snowboarding with him this year. First of all, I'm broke as fuck and cannot afford to get into snowboarding. It's like a hundred dollars just to do it for a day. Yeah. So can't afford that. But also his brother was dating a girl a few years ago and I went over to his house, his brother's house for a party and his girlfriend had casts on her wrists and both of them. (laughs) Yeah. Like plural? Pretty sure it was both. It might have just been one, but either way, they just went snowboarding or skiing that day, and she broke her wrist going down the hill. And I was like, "I'm. I don't need to deal with that. I think money on top of breaking bones is enough for me to say no." Right. Being twenty seven, I just can't
1: imagine another situation where knock on wood, where like I even lose my breath like yeah like hitting my stomach really hard on something i can't imagine that happening anymore (laughs) right let alone breaking a limb so that's gonna be a no for me yeah our next little slider our next little small boy comes in the story of great transition oh we're actually going a little bit more modern on this one so this is just a quick little story highlighting the Deep, deep undercover work of the Detroit Police Department. Okay. So the incident happened in 2017. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I
0: was going to ask if this is about Axel Rose from the uh, Beverly Hills Cop. <laughs> <laughs> not quite. Originally from Detroit. There you go. Oh, so, Axel Foley, not Axel Rose. Axel Rose is the Guns N' Roses guitarist. I mean, like, I was going to let you have it. Nope. <laughs> but, I'm not going to let myself have that.
1: We held ourselves to a different standard. That's why you should rate us five stars on (laughs) Apple (laughs) Podcasts. Putting in all the plugs now. Yeah, exactly. But this incident happened in 2017, so five years ago from the time of this recording. Essentially, the story goes, a few Detroit police officers from the 12th precinct were going undercover, you know, going to the deep, deep undercover, posing as drug dealers, and they went to a drug house to operate a little stingy sting. That is when they met two buyers who were also undercover officers (laughs) from the 11th precinct. This is 22 Jump Street? This is the Spider-Man meme. (laughs) (laughs) From there, more officers kept on showing up with search warrants, and things kept on escalating, escalating to the point where both groups of cops were shoving each other around and throwing punches. That's amazing. Which straight up sounds like a cartoon that I mean, this is like Roadrunner versus the Coyote or something like yeah. that. Yeah. Like, this is Tom and Jerry. Eventually, things got settled and no serious injuries took place. But one deputy said that, and I quote, this is the most embarrassing thing to happen to this precinct in a long time. <laughs> Not in history, just in a, a long, long time. time. Shout out to Troy. <laughs> what
0: else has happened? The... L- <laughs> The Lions letting go of Calvin Johnson. <laughs> I, yeah, true, and not giving um, Matthew Stafford any weapons. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Stafford.
1: I, I truly cannot imagine, like the cops that came in as like the drug dealers, seeing these other two fools and being just in their minds thinking, "Man, we got a good one. This we got. Be a, there's this,
0: no way they're gonna know. This
1: is a layup." They're buying drugs. And How smart they, can they be? Just start punching each other.
0: Good times. <laughs> they out cop themselves. Good times at the precinct in Detroit.
1: Shout out the 11th and 12th Detroit precincts.
0: Okay. I have two stories. Both of them I am I'm aptly titling. T- 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 I am tentatively titling both of these stories as under the same umbrella of going against the odds. So. Ooh. I have one that is a survival story, and the other one is a murder conspiracy story. So Big which one Which one do you want first? Give me survival. Okay. This is the story of Julianne... Oh, no, I already fucked up her name. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she's German, so it's not pronounced like it's spelled. Julianne. Juliana oh. was only 17 years old when she faced the most perilous and life-changing event she would ever go through. Puberty. No. <laughs> that was a be, few, that was be, a few be, years before. Becoming old. Okay. <laughs> she survived a plane crash, but after waking up in the forest, she realized she was all alone. A Christmas Eve flight planned for Lima, Peru would never arrive at its destination, and only one person would survive, Yuliana Kepke. How is this not a movie yet? It is. Oh, there we go. There we go. A movie, and apparently the movie is terrible.
1: Oh, so they did her dirty?
0: Yeah, she, there's a documentary that I'll talk about later, but she says in the documentary, I hate the actress that played me in the movie, because oh, really? she acts so scared about everything the entire movie. Right. So... This is an interesting and very extraordinary tale. Born in Lima, Peru, on October 10th, 1954, Juliana was the child of two German zoologists, Hans Wilhelm and Maria, who made their home in Peru to study wildlife there. Hmm, Germans settling down in South
1: America, you say? (laughs) We've heard of this before. I'll I'll get a whiteboard and start connecting dots. These are the good ones,
0: though. (laughs) Oh, there we go. In addition, Yuliana's father was an active lobbyist for protecting the Amazon jungle from clearing, hunting, and colonization. Eventually, the family moved from Lima to establish a research station in the Amazon, which they named Panguana. At this station, Yuliana would grow up learning how to survive in the rainforest, one of the most diverse and unforgiving ecosystems. She even raised a pet toucan and a few other native animals. So, she was Snow White. She was living. Yeah. Uh, When recounting her upbringing, she stated, quote, I grew up knowing that nothing is really safe, not even the solid ground that I walked on, end quote. But she also knew that it wasn't as dangerous as it was made out to be, saying, quote, I learned a lot about life in the rainforest, that it wasn't too dangerous. It's not the green hell that the world would always think it is, end quote. So, she... Knew that there was dangers, obviously, in the Amazon rainforest, but she also knew that it wasn't the big, scary, bad place that you see in books and movies and stuff like that. That I'm picturing in my mind right now. Yes, like around every corner that there's
1: something just ready to kill you. Right. Growing up in Jackson, Wisconsin, and then ending up in
0: the Amazon rainforest where there's toads that can kill you, But allegedly. She was around it from childhood, and her parents knew that. Knew it like the back of their hand, so mm-hmm. she was ready for it. She was homeschooled at the research center in the forest by her parents for a while, but eventually she attended high school in Lima, Peru to finish out her education. In December of 1971, Yuliana graduated high school and attended the prom on the 23rd of December, a day before she was to leave with her mother to fly to the research station to spend the holidays with her father. Since Juliana wanted to attend the dance, the two were forced to book a flight with Lanza, an airline that had a pretty shoddy reputation already due to two other recent crashes. E. So she knew that it wasn't great, but that it was last minute on Christmas Eve. They had to really take what they could get.
1: Well, and plus, this is a teenager wanting to go to a dance, so it's like perfectly understandable that yeah, we just push it off.
0: And she was homeschooled, so she finally right. has social norms that she's trying to keep up.
1: And also, what's the chance that it can happen a third time? Yeah, you what know? are the odds? Yeah,
0: I mean, the plane they're flying on, the Lockheed L-188 Electra, uh, was specifically bad. Uh, of the 170 built, 58 of them were written off after either a crash... Or an extreme mid-air malfunction. Oh, wow. So So talk about a bad track record. That's bad. That's over one in three. So they did know what the chances were. (laughs) (laughs) It's not good. But the Kepkis were eager and thankful to be able to find a flight to get them back to Penguana in the jungle. So despite urgings from Hans Wilhelm to find another flight, the women still boarded. Yuliana and her mother stationed themselves in the second row from the back of the plane with Yuliana sitting in seat 19F with her mother in the middle and, as she put it, an obese Peruvian man on the aisle seat. <laughs> and, and she said he fell asleep almost immediately when he got when they got in the plane.
1: That's the best person to sit by, though. Yeah. Not the, I guess, larger, Yeah. Room, but right. just like falling Someone asleep, asleep immediately. immediately.
0: Yeah. As they flew, everything seemed normal for the first part of the flight. The passengers got their lunches, and nothing seemed out of the ordinary. And mind you, this was only an hour-long flight, so it wasn't like they were going super far. However, about 15 minutes before landing at its layover destination, the plane came across a massive thunderstorm. According to Yuliana, it was pitch black in the storm with frequent flashes of lightning outside the plane. Then suddenly she saw one incredibly bright flash to the right wing next to her as if lightning had struck one of the engines. Oh, that's, that has to be the scariest realization of all time. The worst. Baggage and presents flew about inside the cabin, falling from their storage compartments, and Yuliana's mother apparently said either, hopefully this goes all right, or this is the end. Oh. Ooh. The latter would prove to be more accurate. Yeah,
1: those are two very different uh, ends of the spectrum. Yeah,
0: depending on the source you get, it's one or the other. Shortly after the lightning hit the wing, the plane broke apart. Juliana described it not as falling out of the plane, but rather that the plane left her. Oh, so she was just sucked right out from, oh wow. Yeah, she said she never left the plane. The plane just left all of them. That's a blink
1: of an eye and you're just out
0: yeah. just out of the plane. She described how all of the screams and the motor noise suddenly vanished and all she could hear was the sound of the wind in her ears as she began to plummet 10,000 feet to the ground below, still strapped to her seat.
1: Okay, so I went skydiving uh, this past October and I'm just picturing or just reimagining the wind when you're falling. That I experienced and knowing like, oh, there's like several parachutes attached to this as well as a trained man yeah, who's done this. He told me literally over a thousand times, if not more. And I was still scared. I cannot yeah. imagine. How high did you jump
0: from? 10,000. Okay. So yeah. Imagine exactly that, except you're just strapped to a seat right, with two other people. I would, oh
1: my god, I can't imagine. I cannot imagine. And you're strapped to your seat, too. Yeah,
0: she said on the way down, the seats were spiraling like a maple seed. You know how they kind of helicopter down? Right. Since she was on one end of the row and the other guy was on the other end of the row. Mm. And the weight just kind of kept spinning them around. But before she hit the ground, she lost consciousness. So oh, she doesn't even know,
1: oh, I guess he'll probably get into
0: it. It proves, I... I'm going to say with 95% certainty that her losing consciousness is the reason she survived. I
1: think there's multiple stories of tornado victims as well yeah. getting flung across an entire state and they lost consciousness and survived completely fine.
0: Yeah, it's the same with drunk drivers. Like right. The reason more drunk drivers survive than the people they hit is because their body doesn't tense up from like expecting the impact. Right. So it doesn't tense the muscles and lead to easier breaks and stuff like that. Which is insane, but yeah, the, pe- the reason that she survives, I think, is because she was unconscious and didn't tense.
1: Are you about to tell me that she landed just on the Amazon basin floor?
0: Yeah. Once she awoke, she found herself still attached to her seat on the floor of the jungle. And well-rested, wow. <laughs> she had a severe concussion. Her eyes were swollen shut. The only eye she could look out of was her right eye, which she had like a little sliver she could see through. She had a broken collarbone that didn't pierce the skin and a giant gash on her calf. However, she said the most strange thing about her injuries was that the gash on her leg wasn't bleeding, even though she said it looked like a canyon. Oh, so like, okay, I see. She just said it looked like a clean cut with like, like it had jagged edges, like it was cut by something metal, but there was no blood, but she could see straight through, like straight into it. So it was a, gross. It, it was a very deep cut. That is
1: insane. Yep. Like those are very gruesome injuries, don't get me wrong, but
0: I'll, breathing after that is exactly. Insane. She was wearing only the miniskirt dress that she began the flight with and one sandal, but her glasses were gone. So she in addition to her eyes being pretty much swollen shut, she also had difficulty seeing in general.
1: And hard to find those on the Amazon basin floor. Yeah.
0: After waking up the first time, she could only process that she had survived the crash and that she was in the forest before she passed out again. She said she laid underneath the seats for about half a day until she finally managed to gather enough, enough strength to get out of her seat and get her bearings. Her first thing that she did when she got back into the swing of things, as you, if I suppose you could say, she was looking for her mom. She began to crawl around looking for her because she still couldn't stand up yet. However, she was unsuccessful. Eventually, she heard the sound of running water. Since she was raised in the jungle, she knew that running water was the best thing she could hear, because not only had her father taught her that civilization would be downstream, but a story of survival from her childhood also taught her this same trick because she heard of a group of adventurers in the nearby mountains that had needed to return to get help when their guide had shot himself in the leg, but the man that went out to get help got lost. Eventually, this man found a stream and followed it and found help, though. And this is what Yuliana was relying on to save herself.
1: This is incredible
0: luck. Yeah.
1: Like, just follow the stream back to... Back to civilization, as well as just, like, having a place for water as well.
0: Yeah, it is very lucky, but it's also, like, all of her survival instinct that oh, she totally. learned from her parents growing up, coming yeah. in handy all at once.
1: And just knowing to, like, lay low for half a day, like, to, like, regain some semblance of strength.
0: Yeah, she's tried. said she tried to get up on her knees, and she almost instantly fainted again when she oh, first I don't tried, so... It. Yuliana then began her journey downstream, sometimes walking and sometimes needing to swim. The jungle, even with guides and machetes, still prevents a very arduous and slow hike. So as you can imagine, this was quite the intense task for a single young woman with no tools. And no legs. And trying to climb over just a fell log. And your clothes are constantly wet. Like, not a fun time. No. After 4 days of traversing the jungle, Juliana eventually found 3 more passengers, 3 more passengers still strapped to their seats. However, so, oh. they had landed headfirst into the ground with such force that they were buried 3 feet deep with only their legs sticking out into the air.
1: Now that's something straight out of a cartoon, that yeah. you see. But like seeing that in real life with real people, I that's again I'd probably throw up. (laughs) Yeah. Almost immediately.
0: She looked at them and saw that one of them was a female, and thinking it might be her mother, she went to go check, but she saw that the woman had painted toenails, and her mother never painted her toenails. So she realized, nope, this is not my mom. But there was a fortunate side to finding these other passengers, though, because Juliana was able to find a bag of sweets that would serve as her only food source for her entire time in the forest. She just looks in there, peeps. She's like, actually, no, no thank you. <laughs> she, she said she found some sort of cake too, or something like that, with the bag of sweets, but it was covered in mud. And uh, so she tried eating it and she tasted it, and it was so bad that she said no. Yeah. Even though she realizes, like, after the fact that that might have been useful to have. I could have saved her life. But, like, she, but she was like, I can't stomach this. No. Yuliana attempted the best she could to find herself leaves or thick tree trunks to provide her some sort of shelter. However, with how much it rained and how thin her clothing was, she spent most nights sleepless and shivering while also getting drenched.
1: Gosh, there has to be like, she ran into an animal or something story
0: coming up here. Eventually, Yuliana heard planes and helicopters above attempting rescue operations, but she could not draw their attention because despite the largest search in Peru's history, the density of the forest would not allow rescue teams to see any of the wreckage from the plane, much less one single person. Right. So she now knew that she was truly on her own. She kept following the water, and eventually she found a propeller and engine from the plane in the forest.
1: That was has to be a little surreal, just discovering all these little bits and pieces.
0: Yeah. Finding, Mm. like, other passengers and then Mm. finding the propeller, yeah. By the ninth day, Yuliana finally came across a sign of civilization, a hut. She went inside and chose to rest with every inclination that she was likely to die alone in the jungle. Inside of the hut, she found a can of gas, which she used to pour over the wound on her shoulder. That wound was specifically bad, as it had become infested with maggots, which she was able to pull out on her own. And she ended up spending the night there, and to her amazement, she woke up hearing other voices.
1: That has to be the... That has to be like like hearing angels at that point.
0: That's literally what she says, yeah.
1: Also, Meg, disgusting. It is gross. Like, in your flesh.
0: Yeah. In the documentary, she made a point to go to a farm where a horse had gotten cut, like really bad yeah. and she showed they zoom in on the cut and there's maggots and she's like that's what my arm looked like i was i don't need to see that but thank you for the visual that's just those are just
1: oh it's uh, disgusting uh, yeah ew, ew ew
0: ew ew gross so upon waking up three peruvian loggers found yuliana in their hut and at first these three men were startled Believing her to possibly be some sort of water spirit that they refer to as, I'm not going to get this right, Yamanjabut. She made it all that way and then they they were scared of her because they thought she was a water spirit. Because apparently there's a story of a blonde, pale skinned, Mm. like, spirit of the water and. That's exactly what she looks like. She's a 17 year old blonde, thin woman. So they were like, it's a spirit.
1: Oh, that's so, that has to be so frustrating. Like having to explain, like, no, 17 year old girl. Yeah. So, would, like, would like to go home.
0: So she luckily knew how to speak Spanish because her parents had taught her and she went to school in Peru. So despite their apprehension, she told them that she was a survivor of the plane crash and the men let Yuliana stay there for the night and the following day took her by boat to the hospital located in the small town nearby. So 11 days of survival on her own had finally brought Yuliana Kepke to safety. She was treated for her injuries and reunited with her father. Good for
1: her. That's super sad like she lost her mother and all those people, but... That's such an incredible story. That's 11 days.
0: We're still not done. Oh, we're still not done. Nope. So, but with the good comes the bad, as she found out that her her mother had initially survived as well, but she died from her injuries shortly afterwards. Mm -hmm. Showing true strength, Yuliana agreed to help the authorities find the plane out in the forest. So she went back with people to go help them find the plane and after a few days, they were able to find and identify the corpses. 92 people were on board Lanza Flight 508, but only Juliana survived. Jeez. Following the event, life was tough, as is to be expected. She was the center of a media spectacle, and she developed a fear of flying, and had reoccurring nightmares of the event. But she didn't let that stop her. She went back to the jungle after studying biology in Germany, She went back to Peru, studied bats, and eventually got married to a fellow biologist. In 1998, she returned back to the exact site of the plane crash with director Werner Herzog to tell her story. She once again sat in seat 19F for the flight to the filming, which she said was therapeutic and helped her gain a bit of closure on the entire ordeal. Good for her. Yeah, she's very brave.
1: In the same seat, too. Do you think they rolled out the same plane just for shits and gigs? <laughs> no, they flew in a much more <laughs> they, safe plane. <laughs> <laughs> they threw in a, yeah, on the, like, like, secure air buses, even I though it's ho- an hour flight.
0: I would hope that there's no more of these these lots of flights even available mm-hmm. anymore after all of this. No. When they got to the forest, they examined scraps that still remained from the plane, and she retraced her steps to get an idea of what she went through for everyone watching. The only thing that she said she could never come to terms with was the question of why she was the only one to survive. Ah, uh, the old survivor's remorse, huh? Yep. Today, Juliana still runs the Panguana Research Center and serves as a librarian at the Bavarian State Collection of Zoology in Munich. Juliana Kepke survived what is now listed by Guinness World Records as the deadliest plane crash caused by an in-flight lightning strike. The Werner Herzog documentary called Wings of Hope, as well as her autobiography, When I Fell from the Sky, are now both available to the public to hear or read her incredible story. And that is an incredible story. Absolutely insane. Just trying to put your, you truly
1: can't put yourself in those shoes, or I guess in this case, no shoes, because they all flew off. Just crawling around the Amazon rainforest floor trying to survive in any way possible
0: it insane. the pictures are crazy because it's just her in the middle of like a river wearing this dress with a hiking stick and she's just this pretty young high school girl right and she survived like that for almost two weeks on her own in the forest
1: oh man
0: insane and the only one to do
1: it out of 90 90 plus yeah
0: i mean there's just the fact that she survived the initial crash is lucky enough but yeah if if there was anyone that was going to survive this, it would have either been her or her mom, though, I think. Right. And her mom did not, unfortunately, but at least she did. Wow. That is insane. Yeah, crazy. Well, back to one of my little sliders. <laughs> but like I said, against the odds.
1: Against the odds, absolutely. But uh, our next little slider uh, comes in the story of Robert Hansen. So Hansen became an FBI agent in 1976, which if you're a true history buff or you just happen to be 50 plus years old, that was during the time of the Cold War as well as one Red Scare where everyone was a Russian spy in America and everyone in Russia was an American spy. Now Hansen spent a few years gathering counterintelligence on the Soviets for the FBI, you know, what he was hired for. However, 3 years after his first day in 1979, and speculation is this is most likely for financial reasons, he decided to start he decided to start selling information to the Soviets. Not a good one. So the man that was responsible for a, a lot of good counterintelligence against the Soviets kind of just took a payout. And
0: this continued for 8 years. He just kind of read the book about Benedict Arnold and saw I, he wasn't getting paid either. Yeah. So I guess I could just go give enemy information and then I'll get paid. How to Collect
1: Fat Stacks by Benedict Arnold. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> However, uh, in 1987, Hanson was actually tasked. So his boss called him up, said, hey, Hanson, get in here to his office. Yeah, what's up? I need you. Robert Hansen. Yep, that's me. To look into all possible security and intelligence breaches within the FBI related to the KGB.
0: Do you have a mirror? <laughs> <laughs> Hansen, why are you sweating so much? No reason. <laughs> so I, I just really need to go to the bathroom. <laughs> <I> just,
1: <laughs> like right now, immediately. So Robert Hansen, the man who was a counterintelligence specifically for the soviets started selling information to the soviets was now in charge of discovering moles and possible turncoats for the soviets so he his job was now to look for himself
0: hey robert where'd you get that moleskin hat <laughs> looks very
1: siberian hey robert bob you mind if i call you bob <laughs> yeah that's yeah that's me why do you have a uh, hammer and sickle right here? Nothing, comrade. Why do you <laughs> ask? <laughs> <Huh>. <laughs> Eventually, Robert Hansen was caught after the FBI paid 7 million dollars to a former KGB agent who played a tape recording of Hansen speaking with another KGB agent. The FBI agents involved only recognized Hansen because he used an offensive quote from General George S. Patton about Japanese people. Wow. And the agents had heard Hansen use it before. So, Robert Hansen, again, the man who was hired to do counterintelligence on the Soviets, started selling information to the Soviets, was then put in charge of looking for people selling information to the Soviets, was only found because he was racist.
0: (laughs) That is the ultimate fuck you.
1: And he just kept on, I guess that's truly what did him in. He just used an, a very offensive quote, which I won't read on these airways, about Japanese people. The message here, kids is don't be racist. Or betray your country to the Soviets. Nah,
0: that part's fine. Wherever the money is. Hey, we are very much pro-securing the bag on this podcast. Yeah, so... You do what you gotta do, as long as you're not selling, like, detrimental state secrets that will destroy America.
1: And look at that, we're now on the FBI's list.
0: That's fine. We're not that dangerous. We're, we record ourselves saying all of these things. Right. So, don't-
1: you, they don't really need to dig into any, you know, evidence or anything. We no. just gotta provide it ourselves. Yeah. pretty
0: charge Not a hard job for them.
1: But yeah, that is the story of Robert Hansen, and now I'm gonna get to my next slider of the president who basically told an entire country that he's kinky so in <laughs> 1977 one jimmy carter visited poland during his speech his interpreter mistranslated him multiple times when he entered the country so just give a little background jimmy carter goes into poland it's 1977 So again, still Cold War, still Red Scare a little bit. And he's in Poland and his speech due to these mistranslations made it sound as if he had now left the United States permanently and was never going to give or excuse me, was never going back. And the extra kicker that he wanted to give Poland a handjob. Nice. <laughs> the entire country I mean, I of Poland. Say,
0: I would say keep them there, then.
1: <laughs> In the speech, Carter said that he wanted to know more about the Polish people's desires for the future. However, his interpreter translated that as Carter desiring Poland sexually. Countrywide handjobs. Countrywide handjobs. Later, the interpreter also delivered mistranslations, such as, I left the United States never to return. And Carter, (laughs) and that President Jimmy Carter was, and I quote here, was happy to grasp at Poland's private parts. (laughs) Nice. I bet they're happy to have him. Can you imagine just all these people like, the leader of
0: the free world, huh? (laughs) Yeah, doing good. Very free. Do you think he walked in backwards like the Nazis did so they thought that they were leaving? I hope so. That kind of- <laughs> Is that where the moonwalk came from? <laughs> I don't know. The Nazis invented the moonwalk by
1: tricking the Polish. <laughs> Michael Jackson just stole that from the Nazis. So that was the worst part of the visit, but not the end of it. Carter promptly- I guess it depends
0: who you're asking if that's the worst part. <laughs> <laughs>
1: if it was a happy ending or what. <laughs> yeah. But Carter got a new translator. And later at the state banquet, Carter gave a toast. However, his interpreter refused to translate anything that Carter was saying.
0: Where is he getting these guys?
1: Yeah. Apparently, the interpreter couldn't understand Carter. Is he
0: going on, like, Fiverr and getting the cheapest interpreter
1: possible, or what? Honestly, yeah. This interpreter couldn't understand Jimmy Carter's, quote, accent of English, and therefore just stayed completely silent during the entire toast.
0: That guy is more useless than the first guy,
1: right? At least he was saying, like, hey, uh, he was
0: giving hot singles some, in your area some apparently. information. <laughs>
1: yeah. So, Carter's trip started with him saying, Everyone, every man, woman, hopefully not child in Poland, <laughs> that would have been bad, <laughs> that would have been tough. In Poland, you know, I'm here for a good time, and it ended with a toast. That was completely silent.
0: This, I think Poland is the country that banned Winnie the Pooh because yeah, he wasn't wearing pants. Because he wasn't wearing pants. So them getting this message probably threw them way off. Oh, that's that's probably what did it for them. You yeah. know, these Americans <laughs> Honestly, and
1: their cartoon bears and their presidents
0: giving handjobs. Wanting to sexually pre- pleasure the entire country's private parts.
1: That's how, I mean, stop the steal. That's how we stole the election. That is, that is Well, true. actually, he didn't get elected
0: but regardless this uh reminds me i think it was a hurricane translator interpreter was on a a national news thing and he wasn't actually an interpreter he just had a deaf family member so he kind of knew asl so he was trying to translate while they were giving warnings to people for hurricane like evacuation and stuff Oh no! So he just kept saying there were giant monsters coming and stuff like that, which I guess also kind of gets the point across. But but that's also that's also the plot to Pacific Rim. Yeah. So he he was giving them a warning that something was coming. Yeah. So I guess he wasn't terribly wrong. He's needed to sign GTFO, my dudes. Seriously, Jimmy Carter, what a guy! You need more presidents like him. Given handjobs to foreign that's our foreign policy that's our new foreign policy I, I dig it
1: looking at you biden the thing is though biden would probably i don't he'd fall mind. asleep yeah
0: <laughs> during the handjob yeah no <laughs> well he's the one giving it so he's not getting anything out of it he'd probably fall asleep either way honestly and was, that's presidential election there's a, there's election. a reason that's they call not... him sleepy joe Um, uh, man all right are you ready for a not fun story Oh. (laughs) Yeah, this is what I'm bringing today. So this one's the murder conspiracy. So against all odds, but the odds win this time. I mean, this is an interesting one. It kind of fits under the against all odds banner, but by the end, it kind of goes sideways. So it starts off as like a success story and then quickly turns into a murder conspiracy. Oh, no. So, (laughs) but we're talking about the Native Americans and The Osage Oil Murders. So as most people know, once Christopher Columbus arrived in America, things steadily began on a downward trend for indigenous people already living in America. Starting in 1492 and continuing throughout the 1500s and into the 1600s, more and more explorers arrived in the quote-unquote New World and attempted to impose their will on the current inhabitants. That is also the classic, like, oh, the whole new
1: world, but there's people there already.
0: Yeah, it's not new to them. No. <laughs> it's been there the whole time. Yeah, we've been here. So I'm going to give a brief, I'm not going to do like the whole history class review of how we really didn't treat the Native Americans well, but I do, I'm going to set the scene with telling you the steps that it took to get to this point where the Osage got to a little bit of revenge on the government right if we were going to dive into the sins of the american people against the native americans we'd be here for a while giving them blankets that was the biggest thing smallpox killed like 90 percent of the native american population that's that, kind of crazy that sink in. yeah but, uh, Back to our explorer friends, men like Ponce de Leon and Hernando de Soto hailed from Spain, arriving in the southern part of the country and coming to blows with the natives and taking some as servants along the way. Other wars and skirmishes were fought over conversion to Christianity, as well as the fact that these new white men were trying to steal their land. Which would become a recurring theme. Once the 1700s rolled around, it was clear that the Europeans were going to try and uproot any and all Native American settlements they encountered on their way west. But tribes like the Pueblo in New Mexico openly expressed their dissatisfaction with being ruled by anyone else. When the French and Indian War broke out, the Native Americans had a chance to fight back against some of these white men, although they had to do it aside a different group of white men. And in the end, they weren't successful anyways. The whites. (laughs) Always coming in and ruining the fun. It's like, if you can't beat them, join them. But you're joining, again, more more whites. By the end of the 1700s, some tribes were making deals with the new settlers, such as the Treaty of Hopewell in 1785, which designated boundaries for the native Cherokee land in Georgia, as well as placed them under the protection of the newly formed United States. But before long, these settlers intruded on the designated Cherokee land, and the tribe revolted in protest. So only six years after the original treaty was signed, they had to sign the Treaty of Holston, which stated that the Cherokees gave up all claim to the land outside of their established borders. However, that treaty only lasted so long. Because early in the 1800s, settlers wanted their government to remove the Cherokee from that area entirely. Yeah, that was, just talk about like the process of that. All those treaties
1: lasted years, if not like just a few months, because a lot of times U.S. Army soldiers were there stirring things up, and then whenever some, even just a minor issue or accident happens, that basically gave the U.S. probable cause, if you will, or a reason to just take their land even more.
0: Yeah, and this is coming into the time where everyone is traveling to California. Like, this is the early 1800s. Right. By the 1840s, everyone's going that way. So it's just... A matter of time before these things expire. Mm -hmm. And then enter Andrew Jackson. Oh,
1: no. no.
0: Once the the Louisiana Purchase took place, the tribes east of the Mississippi River were pushed to move across the river to the west. They refused initially, but were forced to yield more than 20 million acres of land after suffering a heavy loss to Andrew Jackson at the Battle of Horseshoe Bend. The government began passing acts to break up Native American autonomy, which included seizing the remaining Cherokee land in Georgia, even though they had already formed a new constitution-based government of their own, the Cherokees. And then good old Andrew Jackson became president. Oy, yeah, this guy should not be on the $20 bill. Shouldn't be on anything. A year into his presidency, he signed the Indian Removal Act which divided the land west of the Mississippi River to give native tribes in exchange for what was taken from them. This was, to put it lightly, controversial. Yeah. (laughs) Even for the 1800s. Yeah. But he said that it was the best solution. So. Because his big brain thought of it. Many tribes were forced to move west on foot, sometimes in chains, with little to no supplies. And this led to the infamous Trail of Tears journey, which if you don't know, was a journey of thousands, tens of thousands of Native Americans west across the Mississippi River into the Western territories, which claimed the lives of thousands of Native Americans. Couple that with the smallpox that was steadily ripping its way through the tribes and you get a lot of corpses. Eventually, white settlers wanted to claim more land in the West, which caused Indian territory to shrink even more and there was nowhere else for them to be moved to anymore. So then the Indian Appropriations Act was passed, which created the Indian Reservation System and provided funds to move the tribes onto farming reservations. There are problems with this one, though if you couldn't guess. For one, this was an obvious attempt to impose even more control over an already very marginalized population. The tribes were now forced to attempt an entirely new way of life, abandoning their hunter instincts and trying to settle into farm life. They were encouraged, or sometimes forced, to wear non-indigenous clothing and forced to learn to read and write in English. Missionaries also continued attempts to at converting the tribes to Christianity and telling them to give up their spiritual beliefs and their traditions.
1: Yeah, it was effectively they're trying to kill their culture.
0: They were whitewashing the
1: Native American population. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And like imposing, like, you had to wear our clothes, like that kind of stuff. It's what we've done. Like,
0: it's not we, like, we weren't there, I don't know. Yeah.
1: But, like, America historically has done with every marginalized group of people that we come in contact with.
0: It's kind of like giving prisoners all the same outfit. It gets rid of any self-identity. It gives everyone the same identity as everyone else, and you're not an individual anymore. Right. Eventually, these communal reservations were split even more and given to individual members of tribes, which left them with even less land. Because they would break them up into sections, and any section that wasn't connecting to the one next to it, that land in between was sold and used for railroads and white settlements. So they're trying to break these people apart as much as possible so that they can control them. Mm -hmm. However, amongst this chaos and devastation for the Native Americans, one tribe found a way to gain the upper hand against the government that was trying to take everything from them. The Osage Nation had been moving back and forth from Arkansas to Oklahoma, but eventually, in 1872, they purchased, it's an important word, they purchased 1.5 million acres of land in Northeast Oklahoma. This was different than a reservation that was allotted by the government because the Osage owned the land that they now lived on instead of being given it. Mm Mm-hmm. In addition, this exempted them from the Dawes Act of 1887, which was the act that divided those communal reservations into separate groups. They were able to organize their own Allotment Act, which was passed in 1906. According to the Osage Allotment Act, each member of the tribe got much larger plots of land without having to sell any of the extra, and the tribe reserved all of the mineral rights in their territory, meaning that they could lay claim to any of the precious stones, any, anything else under the ground that they would find. These mineral rights weren't individual for each member, but they were communal, which meant that any mineral wealth was divided equally to every member of the tribe on the land. And this would prove to be an amazing move for the Osage Nation because the reservation sat atop one of the largest oil reserves in the United States. Jackpot. Very quickly, the Osage, numbering just above 2,000 members remaining, found themselves being the wealthiest people per capita in the world in the 1920s. And in 1923 alone, they received what would be worth around $400 million in oil reserve money.
1: In today's currency? Yep. Between 2,000 people. That is pretty good. Yeah,
0: so... They were on the come up, mm-hmm. and that's why purchasing the land became so important, because the government had no say in taking it back anymore. They legally right. sold that land. All of this wealth came in the form of what were known as head rights, which were hereditary claims to the mineral wealth in the land that passed from generation to generation. So with this new, but with this newfound wealth, it wasn't long until it attracted a lot of attention to the tribe. The government began another attempt at controlling the Osage by saying that tribe members weren't able to handle their money on their own. So the Osage needed white guardians to oversee their spending. Oh my god.
1: Yeah. That's the most, that's one of the, of course, not on level of like murdering, but that is so insulting.
0: Yeah. This obviously racist system clearly undermined the Osage as a people and was a clear attempt at controlling them. Wow. Yeah. So they that is- they finally make it. This is where they beat the odds. Mm-hmm. But they don't continue to beat the odds.
1: I mean that's yeah, truly the classic phrase of moving the
0: goalpost. Exactly. Individually, the Osage were beginning to intermingle with the white folks and even intermarry with them, and this is where the real problems began. Shortly after this clash of cultures, the white men were beginning to swindle the Osage out of their money to start building things like hotels. And then, blood began to be spilled. One woman, an Osage woman named Molly Burkhart, married a white man named Ernest Burkhart. They had two children together, lived in a large mansion, and were happy by all appearances. But then eventually, Molly's sister Anna Brown... Was found dead in a ravine, shot to death. With no real justice system in place, this murder went largely uninvestigated. I mean, sure, there was a sheriff, but they had no training in how to scientifically investigate a murder. And plus, it was very easy to buy off a lawman in this last remnant of what was the Wild West. The only lead was that Ernest Burkhart's brother was the last person to be seen with Anna before she died. Shortly after Anna was killed, Molly's mother became mysteriously sick. Two months later, she was dead. Hmm. And it would later be found that she was poisoned. Within months, Molly had lost both her sister and her mother. Then, at 3 a.m. one night, a house not far from Molly exploded in the middle of the night. It was her other sister's house. It was discovered that someone had planted a bomb underneath it. Wow, that is just wiping out an entire family. In the matter of like three months. That's
1: like Strav Yellowstone or something. Like it's something. crazy.
0: Many more victims would turn up throughout the following decade or two, with poisonings, gunshots, people being thrown from trains, literally. And this whole time, white men were taking advantage of these killings and taking the oil money that the Osage had been accumulating. Molly had to hire private investigators to try and get anything done, but they were just as shady as anyone else. For example, one state investigator who was one of the top ones in the governor's eyes named Fox showed up, took a bribe from a bootlegger, and immediately got arrested. He was then pardoned by the governor and then went on to commit an unrelated murder. (laughs) What kind of like Wild West wacky... Literally Wild West. (laughs) Yeah. Nobody could be trusted except maybe one man, it seemed. Barney McBride was a local oil man who was a friend of the Osage people. He was sent to Washington, D.C. to plead for help from the federal government involving solving the Osage murders and bringing peace to the tribe. So he arrived at his boarding house in D.C. and received a telegram almost immediately telling him to be careful. That night, he left his boarding house. A bag was thrown over his head. He was abducted, beaten, and stabbed 20 times or more. And his body was found naked in a culvert in Maryland. Oh, wow. So they drove that body quite some ways. No, you I mean, he was in Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C., oh, yeah. So. Right, right, right. The Washington, the Washington Post then reported that there was clearly a, quote, conspiracy to kill rich Indians, end quote.
1: Again, that uh, happens a lot in America's history with marginalized people with the burning of Black Wall Street,
0: for example. This is when the story officially hit national news. But this is also when it showed that the reach and the power of whoever was organizing these crimes was very vast. The Osage Reign of Terror, as it would come to be known, was now in full swing with 20-plus people having already died. Enter J. Edgar Hoover. No. In the 1920s, he was in charge of the Bureau of Investigations, the precursor to the modern FBI, and he began to organize a set of lawmen to go out to Oklahoma to investigate. The problem was, at the time, he was hiring the college boys, the good-looking, very suave and clean-cut guys who really didn't know how to be lawmen. So kind of Hoover being... uh... Hoover. Yeah. But he also had in his staff these Wild West lawmen who were very experienced but didn't like to conform to the new methods of scientific analysis like fingerprinting and were very much more accustomed to the frontier way of solving things. They loved to bring up how they had a hunch and so, that hunch was shoot them in a saloon. Yeah. So he picked some of these he picked one specifically of these Wild West frontier men. And took a gamble, sent him out with a group of what he called cowboys, and they decided to go investigate these oil murders. Once they got there, they realized that it was too dangerous to just go in as themselves, so they went undercover and began to uncover the fact that there was truly an enormous enterprise to swindle the Osage out of their money through that system of white guardians. Two men were eventually brought to trial. But the question was whether anyone would convict white men with resources and money for the murder of a Native American. Ooh, because that would set quite the precedent. Exactly. The first trial ended in a hung jury, and it was later found to be the result of bribery and buying one of the jurors. But eventually, more and more people began to get found out to be involved. The most shocking is that the people operating within this cabal of criminals were the same people that the Osage had called friends and lovers. Molly found out that her husband was one of the participants. He had actively aided in blowing up one of the houses. It's like I'm speechless. Yeah. Like this is
1: I mean, I guess I do kind of know why we don't talk about this more. But why don't we talk about this more? It's seriously insane. That's so like devious and
0: like truly evil. It's not re- like it's far and above any random act of violence. It's you literally lived with these people, you married these people, you had kids with these people, and you m- helped to murder pretty much their entire family yeah. to steal their money.
1: That's so calculated. It's the most evil thing. <laughs> That's poisoning and blowing up a house. Yeah,
0: it's Unbelievably sadistic. Eventually, it was found that a man named William Hale was one of the main men in charge of running this crime ring. Guess who he was? He was the uncle of Ernest and Brian Burkhart. Eventually, Ernest turned state's evidence to avoid the death penalty and named his uncle as the one in charge. So that's how they found out that William Hale was the one in charge of this little Mm -hmm. gang of criminals. But by the end of the story, over 60 people were dead under mysterious circumstances in the course of about 20 years. William Hale was sentenced to life in prison, but only served 18 years, along with Burkhart and another man, who both were sentenced to life and also were paroled after 18 years. So in like actual hindsight, that's like a slap
1: on the wrist for 60 dead bodies. Yeah.
0: In 1925, Congress passed a law prohibiting non-Osages from inheriting any head rights of tribal members. So this prevented the unlikely death or the untimely deaths of their spouses, which would mean that they would inherit all of the money. Meaning, so if like a actual true situation happened where there's no
1: one left to take the money, like the government would get it, essentially.
0: So basically... These headrights work that they're passed from generation to generation from like full blood or at least half blood Osage members. Oh, gotcha. So it could be in the case of Molly and Ernest. Mm. So say Molly, uh, strangely dies, then Ernest would get the money mm. for now until it could be passed on to the kids. Got it. So okay. then he would have access to everything that they own and right. could use that however he wanted. Right. So that was pretty much the move. Gotcha. And especially with the situation in place where they said they couldn't handle their money and they needed these people to oversee their finances, it wouldn't be that hard for him to just be like, I got the money now. Right. Right. So a tirade of racism and greed devastated a community that had already dealt with so much and they were betrayed by the people who acted to love and befriend them. In 2017, New Yorker staff writer David Gran produ- published a book titled Killers of the Flower Moon about the events of the Osage murders, which is currently being adapted into a movie directed by Martin Scorsese. Oh, a Scorsese one. Yeah. So I do. That was a brief overview of this story. I would potentially like to come back and do an entire episode dedicated just to this, but I want to read this book beforehand. And that would be like a whole series. That's twenty years, sixty bodies. So yeah, it's a, a very intense story, but that is the overview of it. So Wow. Intense. That is very intense. Because we know about the the overarching how we treated Native Americans terribly, but mm-hmm. these these smaller stories really pinpoint how bad things were. Right. We typically
1: focus on what the US government did, what Andrew Jackson did, what like governors, state senates, all that good stuff did to like these these people, but you have to keep in mind, it was very much I'm trying to say like that classic phrasing of, Oh, it was the times, like Yeah. There was just
0: racism, right? Institutionalized racism is very dangerous. Yes. And like it gets to stuff like this. That's what it leads to. So mm-hmm. that's why it's so it's so important that you gotta teach people not to Buy into ideals like these dangerous ideals, right? Looking right, at right. you, Kanye. Yeah. Oh, yeah. he's been he's been on one. He has been on one. <laughs> yeah. All
1: right. So I got one more full length story uh, for you guys. One last slider, the one mini slider, which is basically a the one mini slider, which I guess you could almost call like a little cupcake, was that an actual Catholic pope? So Pope Urban the Seventh. Outlawed tobacco. Why, you ask? Because it was thought that tobacco caused sneezing, and Pope Urban VII believed that sneezing was too close to orgasming. <laughs> sure. So he banned the selling of tobacco and tried to ban sneezing in public places. What an, The Urbans,
0: as Popes, have crazy stories
1: attached to them. Every single like crazy story you have,
0: it's Pope Urban. Yeah, and because pope Ur, I think it's Pope Urban the sixth. He was in charge during the Black Plague. And oh, my was He was God. He just, just insane. He had the fires built around and, him, right? Because he was like the horniest pope, too. So it's funny that he got succeeded by another guy who said that sneezing was close who, to organize. Who was like, we're done with the horny. Yeah, yeah so. <laughs> um,
1: And then my last story that I have for you all today, Little little... Uh, I guess it kind of makes sense here with the World Cup now being at a close by the time that you hear this. Congratulations to, and just fill in the blanks, Argentina.
0: All right, cool. I haven't, I have not been following
1: it at all. Me either. I watched the US for about an hour during their game, the game that they got eliminated in, and had a lot of beers at nine o'clock in the morning. So
0: that's the only important part.
1: Yep. But we're going to take you to 1937 United Kingdom. The match was between Charlton Athletic and Chelsea. Ever heard of them? During the match, a thick fog, and I'm talking about
0: a extremely
1: thick fog. thick with two C's. We're talking the Scooby-Doo where he cut cut a donut out of the fog.
0: I've always wondered what that would taste like. I guess just water.
1: (sighs) Definitely moist. I want to say, for whatever reason, I'm getting like powdered sugar.
0: I think it would just taste like water, though, right? Because it's just fog, it's just water.
1: But in some adaptations, I guess, it's yeah. cotton candy. If it's, <laughs> if it's that <laughs> thick, you could put some butter chicken. Yeah, you can put some, yeah. But the, the fog became so thick that the referees actually called off the match. However, nobody bothered to tell Sam Bartram, who was the goalkeeper for Charlton Athletic. <laughs> So he just thought he was having the easiest game of his life. So for yes, yeah, so for fifteen full minutes, he stood out in front of the goal in a stance, ready to block any goal. Hilariously, Bartram thought that his team was just on a insane offensive run and was pinning Chelsea down by their
0: goal. Can you hear? <laughs> Like right, the whistles right. and the men grunting. Yeah, <laughs> but he
1: didn't realize what had happened until a policeman actually came again, that fifteen to sixteen minutes later, and said, and "I'm guessing, you know, just a,
0: oi, what you doing?" I'd, lo- <laughs> can you imagine how terrifying that would be? Like you're expecting soccer players and you just see an <laughs> <cop>. armed man. <laughs> <A cop. Yeah. laughs>
1: Bertram, realizing that he made a mistake, then, of course, went back to the locker room where the entire team was waiting for him and started bursting out in laughter. Oh, I would, yeah. Just absolutely dying as soon as he entered in the locker room. He was probably pissed. He was so pissed. (laughs) But that is the fun little story of how the goalie stayed on to the
0: field for a
1: full 15 minutes after the
0: game had been called. That's sort of dedication the U.S. needs next year. Right, looking at you Our next year, po- Pulse
1: Pulse, Pulse, Pulse,
0: no idea, football, and absolutely such. no
1: idea. But that wraps up my mini sliders. Sweet,
0: so you got eight stories today. Holy we spoil, cow. we spoil the listeners. I mean, this. one of your stories was just like a thing that Pope Urban did, <laughs> but
1: yeah. the, the story went he was anti horny. I wanted
0: people to stop sneezing. That is fair. So I suppose, what can he do? Mm-hmm. I hope you guys enjoyed these stories. Next week, we're going to get into the Christmas spirit. I'm so excited. We're going to talk about a lot of Christmasy things. Do we do, uh, instead of like the
1: gems of horror, where we turn off the lights and like light candles everywhere? The gems of holiday. <laughs> yeah, or it's just the gems of jolly. There jolly will, gems.
0: There will be a full Jingle Bells band in the background of the entire episode. <laughs> And we're not
1: going to tell them to stop. We're going to just speak while they're it's, trying to
0: play. It's like going to a Mexican restaurant and the mariachi band won't stop playing, <laughs> except it's just a bunch of bells. Yep. So you guys can avoid you guys can avoid all of that by just not listening next week.
1: <laughs> but please <laughs> but do. Please listen, because we, we could use it. Uh, uh, we know how to sell ourselves.
0: Yeah, <laughs> telling you guys not to listen. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention, in addition to the uh, Native American story that I told uh there's a band it's a solo project actually by uh, the artist's name is black braid uh they're a black metal band that or he is a black metal band i guess i should say uh, i messaged him to ask what tribe he belongs to he's from the adirondacks so i don't know what tribe that would be i didn't really f- look into it too much so but i wanted to make sure i got it right so I'm sorry black braid i don't i didn't get a response in time but Go listen to his music and support him. He is a very good musician, and he just released his first album this year. So, nice, yeah, go support. Just wanted to mention that. Absolutely. I think we, but, think we
1: did all our plugs already. Well, let's do them again if you want to continue the conversation. Feel free to contact us on Twitter at gems underscore history. You can find Jacob at Jacob from Wisco and then myself at whatevskis. Then on Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, you can find us... At Gems of History Pod
0: slash podcast. Hello. Yeah. I forget every week. Rate right and review. iTunes, Spotify, wherever you listen. If there is an option to review, go do it. Tune in to Jacob's Friday videos. He's absolutely smashing it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll go with that. <laughs> uh, yeah. We'll be back next week. We'll get you guys into the Christmas spirit. And then after that, we are going to take a week off so we can celebrate the holidays and then we will be back in the new year it's almost time for our year in review i am so that just got
1: me so excited i love that episode so much the
0: fans love those i love that They love those dang episodes what
1: are we even going to talk about what happened this year uh
0: stuff Send stuff things. happened Send i some i literally told myself after last year's episode that i was going to keep a log in my phone of things that happened during each month so that i could get it all prepared beforehand yep guess what i didn't do that <laughs> so <laughs> we're, we'll figure it out there's usually websites that do it like a wrap up so we'll figure it out that's what we do every year we always figure it out don't we I'm really kings of just you know figure it out just go with it uh yeah and we're gonna go out of this episode so you guys (laughs) at home have a great week this week and i got yelled at again for not saying this last week so (laughs) stay polished everybody thank you